On front page with me this morning is senior correspondent with Malay Mail, Iswari Palansami, as well as Ahmad Suhail Atnan, journalist at the News Desk, Marita Harian. Good morning, folks. Hi, hello. Good morning, Shazmin. Good morning. Let's take a look at this headline. Government to set up task force to create one million job opportunities. The cabinet has agreed to set up a task force to create these jobs. The Youth and Sports Minister, Syed Sadiq, uh, has said that um, it will include relevant departments, corporate companies and organizations. She said this is to fulfill Pakatan Harpan's manifesto in creating quality job opportunities for the people and we hope to collaborate with the private sector. The issues of unrealistic wages have come up and preference of certain foreign workers also pertain. How can this possibly affect the nation in the long run? What are your thoughts, Yiswari? I agree with the notion in the first question. You know, we can even go on and create two or three million jobs. But if wage remains something that is very undesirable, then, you know, people are going to think twice. What one million jobs? And another question to ask is, in what sectors are these jobs going to be? Are these sectors offering jobs that are high in demand? You know, how progressive are these sectors in terms of uh, revenue and whatnot? You know, so there are a lot of questions. It's, of course, a very ambitious thing to go out and announce, oh, we are going to create one million jobs. We're going to create one million jobs. But there are so many questions that need to be answered, you know, leading to, to the formation of the supposed one million jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nice to talk. But we need to see the job, you know. We just don't want a situation where come G15 and then, you know, the government just says, yay, we successfully did a million jobs and Mm -hmm. people have no head or tail about it. Okay, what are the numbers? Yeah. So, how your thoughts? So, I I think the issues of uh, salary is very serious because uh, I think recently the uh, National Bank report says that the starting salary for degree, diploma and master holders is getting smaller since 2010. Mm -hmm. So, that is very serious. Uh, It means that uh, almost 18 years that uh, the salaries has been gradually smaller. Mm -hmm. But the salary for... PT3 and SPM holders is increasing, <laughs> which is very funny. Yeah, uh, it, it shows that the professional, the degree diploma holders, master holders, mm-hmm. would rather go find work outside of Malaysia if this continues. So, yeah. like yes, what he said, I, I I agree that you can't just create more jobs without addressing the real issues. Okay, how do we then address uh, these issues? Not just the cabinet and uh, various stakeholders, but also private sectors that need to come on board and offer better packages. Well, I think the private sectors, they need workers, but the the economy right now, that's the, the real issues is economy. Mm. If the economy getting worse, then I don't think th- they are able to, to, to give or uh, to pay more. You know, and to 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 give more job, they they need more workers, but they can't hire because they they got no money or not enough money or something like that. So the, the government need, need to look, especially on ringgit. All right. When we come back, we'll take a look at uh, one year on Pakatan's focus uh, is on the manifesto. Is it really? Uh, we'll be discussing that next here on Light. On front page with me is Suhail Adnan from Berita Harian and Yuswari Palansami from the Malay Mail. Let's take a look at Pakatan's focus on the manifesto. Prime Minister Tun Dr. Mahathir Muhammad admitted that some of the promises in the election manifesto, such as the abolition of toll, as something that could have been done in the immediate term without the government stretching its finances. However, he views it as a significant achievement that the government has managed to steer the country through what he thinks was a difficult period.
without causing too much disruption to the people's lives. Asked if the country was still on track according to his plans for one year on after May 9th, he said, I would like to say we should go faster. We should be able to go faster, but there are so many constraints that we're dealing with, uh, especially with finances. So I guess the question is, are we confident that Pakatan will eventually fulfill all its manifesto? Suhail? Well, yes, I believe so. Eventually, maybe not 100%, because if you look at their manifesto, lots of their promises is for long term, can only be achieved uh, in long term period, like, you know, bringing down the good prices, the uh, job opportunities, affordable houses, or settling the case of Feldau and MDB and such things, even abolishing toll. But that's the real question is why certain leaders, uh, Pakatan Harapan leaders, in GE14, they promise that if day one we win, just like tomorrow we will abolish this toll. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. the real question. It seemed rather immediate yeah, yeah, when they made that promise. That's why people asking, hey, mm-hmm. why you don't abolish toll yet? Because of this promises. Yeah. Yes, what are your thoughts? I, I agree with Suhail. And let us not forget that EPS is the biggest investor in, in tolls, okay, <laughs> in, in, in uh, toll concessionaire companies. So abolishing all the tolls in the country will actually affect your EPF returns, the dividends, the dividend returns and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, you see, when Kakatan Harapan made that promise, people naturally thought it could be kept. But like Sohail also said, there are quite a number of things that Pakatan promised, although they say they're going to do it in this amount of time, you know, in a very miraculously short amount of time. But those things are something, those things are the type of stuff that you have to have a lot of engagement with stakeholders. You have to have a lot of agreement. Let us not go so far. Let us look at the minimum wage. They mm-hmm. promised 1,500 ringgit and then after the discussion, they raised it by 50 ringgit. Mm-hmm. And then after a lot of protest, they raised another 50 ringgit. So it's not easy. There are a lot of people who have a say in these things and, uh, you know, especially if they are paymasters, they have a lot of concern. So we need to take all this into consideration. Uh, well, I, I really hope in the next DE, our politicians can be more sensible when they make promises. But, whether or not Pakatan can keep these promises or not, I am pretty hopeful that, you know, it, it's something that takes time, but I am quite hopeful with some points in the Pakatan manifesto, we will eventually get there. Okay. But there needs to be non-stop work, there needs to be a lot of engagement, and they really have to get down to the ground and do it. Okay, now very, very briefly, in your opinion, what promises could have been fulfilled but have not? I've always felt the petrol price. Uh-huh. See, we are petrol producers ourselves. So it makes me wonder why are we not able to keep the promise, you know, of the one ringgit, 50 cent per litre petrol to, to give that. Right. So that is something that's always been in, been baffling me, you know, and then uh, the government comes up to say there are a lot of mechanisms at work and whatnot. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I've been thinking. What about you, Sohail? Yeah. Well, I think they should have been able to fulfill promises that involve their principles, like uh, appointing the head of election commission, and MACC through Parliament, they have chances to do that, but they choose not to do so. And other things like abolishing certain certain laws like PPPA and amend the constitution to limit the tenure of Prime Minister, the Menteri mm. Besar and Chief Minister, they can do that because that is much more simpler. But right. that's the question. Why don't you do so? Okay, well, we will be uh, touching on the PPPA a little later. Um, but up next, uh, Housing and Local Government Ministers Raida Kamarudin wants to turn rubbish into ringgit. We'll discuss that next here on Light. 
On front page with me this morning is Iswari Palansami from the Malay Mail and Ahmad Sohail Atnan from Barita Harian. Now, Housing and Local Government Minister Zraida Kamarudin has big plans to change the country's waste management industry during her term in office. Uh, her idea um, is to see a centralized waste park handling plastic waste recycling projects so any plastic waste factories outside the boundaries of the park will be deemed illegal. She said that the waste park will also includes scrap metal recycling, especially from irreparably damaged vehicles. And uh, knowing how many road accidents we have every year in, in Malaysia, I'm sure there will be plenty to contribute to the scrap metal recycling. So I guess, you know, should we be focusing on the existing plastic waste that is in our country already or the import of, of more from overseas? Your thoughts, Suhail? Well, yes, definitely we should focus on, especially on the 17 million kilograms of uh, plastic waste in Jinjarum. You know, Jinjarum is near Pulau Indah, you know, beautiful mm-hmm. island. But ironically, there's nothing beautiful about this issue, you know. Yeah. Because uh, I think the priority is to clean this up first and put on a moratorium on importing more plastic waste for a certain period of uh, time, you know, when you already cleared for about 30 to 50% of current waste that we have, then we can import more because, uh, you know, uh, as of right now, there's a lot of illegal factories doing this recycling, mm-hmm. you know. With, Reprocessing. Yes, yeah. with lower technology and there's, you know, dangerous things like chemicals coming yeah. out when you use this low-tech. So right. you have to focus on that first. Your thoughts, Iswari? I agree with Sohail. I think we have quite a number of existing problems with the already existing uh, mountain piles of uh, plastic. And if I'm not mistaken, and I think Sohail would agree to, some of the items are really beyond recycling. You know, it's, it's mm. just that bad. So I think we really have to focus on getting rid of that first. And the moratorium is very important. And another important thing is, if the government starts this project, whoever who were indicted, you know, of uh, running these illegal factories and whatnot, they should not be given any licenses or, you know, they should not be given the contract or responsibilities to run these waste parks. That is most important, you know. So we need to set a precedent. When we are going to do this, we need to do it right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the money that will come into, you know, reprocessing all of this, or rather, I mean, is this money the result of taking in rubbish or recycling it? Uh, well, from the looks of it, it, it looks like, you know, it is for taking in and recycling it. Mm-hmm. So she, she says that the park will focus on, you know, upcycling waste products. Right. So we have to see what's going to come out of this. So I'm just a little bit worried with whatever we have right now. Yeah. Can we do this? And also, Shazmini must remember, Malaysians are yet to, you know, practice proper recycling. Mm-hmm. There was a time when, uh, during the previous government's time, the government actually did implement a serious recycling effort, but the results were not really that great because yeah. not many were actually taking into it. So we need to start that habit to instill it in ourselves and then we will see success with projects like this. So, oh. yeah. Okay. Coming up, uh, Sri Lankan Prime Minister admits that there were prior warnings about the attacks. Uh, we'll be discussing that next here on Light. On front page with me this morning is Iswari Palansami from the Malay Mail and Ahmad Suhail Atnan from Berita Harian. Sri Lanka's Prime Minister Rani Wickremesinghe said yesterday there had been prior warnings about the multiple explosions targeting churches and hotels in Sri Lanka. Speaking to reporters in the capital of Colombo, he said the reason for not taking action would be investigated. He added his country would appreciate the support of other countries about the possible overseas links of the perpetrators of this terrorist act. 
fact, he said that they learned that the perpetrators were all Sri Lankan and a total of eight suspects were arrested in connection with the attacks. I, I do believe I, I read somewhere that there were up to 24 suspects. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, the question is, what is Sri Lanka's history with terrorism? The Civil War has been over now for almost 10 years. Is that, isn't that right, Suhail? About, about so, yeah. 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 So, so I, I think terrorism uh, histories of Sri Lanka started <coughs> since day one of the independence, since 1984, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. because of this nationalism and race-based kind of nationalism. You know, the Sinhalese is the majority and they kind of like jealous of the Tamil uh, because they got special treatment from the British. So the majorities kind of push away the Tamils in Sri Lankan mm-hmm. and then in 76 they, they have this group called Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam LTTE which later was branded as terrorist group so all the violence started from this LTTE and the fight against the rather the government or the Sinhalese people right so we don't know yet I mean no group has taken uh, direct responsibility so uh, you know we'll refrain from saying who's responsible but the police were warned that churches were targets uh, how do governments usually react to such warnings, uh, Iswari? Well, you know, I don't think the government is going to announce whenever they are doing covert operations because when it comes to, you know, anti-terrorism operations, these are very covert things. In Malaysia, we will not know when the government is going to do any operations because it's intelligence which they collect over the years. It can even go up to 10 to 20 years, you know. And then when they, they detain some people and then they issue a statement to say, we have nabbed this many people and they were found to have links with these people and whatnot. You know, these kind of operations, they don't really announce it because then, you know, you, you lose the whole plot. People mm-hmm. tend to flee or they move underground and that's even more dangerous because it gets harder and harder to track them. So what's a bit, dis- what a lot disappointing here is that Sri Lanka had a lot of time to act because there were a lot of warnings and they admitted that they did not act on it. So we need to know why why the oversight, what went wrong. Because there are a lot of lives that were lost, kids, old people, families being wiped out. So this is crazy. Yeah, indeed. It was a very sad Easter Sunday and the world just watched in horror. Now, when we come back, we'll be talking about the Printing Press and Publication Act and uh, whether it is the government's job to preach to the press. That's up next here on Light. On the front page with me this morning is Suhail Adnan from Burita Haryan and from Malay Swari Palansami. This is a big one. Prominent lawyer and Surindran has told the Pakatan Harpan government not to preach to the media, but to repeal the Printing Press and Publication Act 1984. He took exception to Dato Sri Dr. Wan Aziza's speech at a high tea with the press. And he said that the government should protect press freedom, don't patronize or preach to the media. That's not the job of the government. So tell us, Sohail, what are some of the restrictions of the PPPA Act 1984? Well, the real issues of PPPA is because this act has the power to revoke the license of uh, newspapers that uh, aggravated national sensitivities. And that is based on the definition of the government, or uh, specifically the home ministers. Home ministers. Yes, home ministers have total power Mm-hmm. Uh, to revoke or suspend any license of newspapers without going to court. So that is, for me, is too much power for someone. Lah. 
Yeah. Why hasn't it been repealed yet? Eh? He's worried. Well, the government keeps saying that they are actually the latest is they say they are actually studying it because there was an NGO that criticized them saying they backtracked on their promises. So they said we are not and the uh, amendments will be tabled in parliament. Well, the then government, they amended it to remove the requirement for print media organizations to apply for printing permits. But as well pointed out, the law still empowers the Home Minister to revoke uh, mm. or suspend the licenses of any publication he deems to be troublesome. Lah. Okay. And this is actually alarming because it's actually, you know, giving absolute power. Absolute power is actually never good in any instances. And, you know, when it comes to the press, we are the fourth estate. Mm -hmm. You know, we need the balance. So we need the freedom to do our job in order to keep that balance. Okay. I mean, as, you know, as senior journalists, both of you, um, do you feel that the Pagatan Harpan government, well, the government <laughs> and ministers specifically, do they patronize and preach to the media? Well, it, it has been the habit, I think, to, to, to preach the media, to tell the media what to do, what not to do, especially when there's a bad publicity on them, you know. And usually it's because of what they say. I mean, mm. they're the one who bringing the the it bad negativity on, on, on them. <laughs> but <laughs> they blame the media. Yeah. Uh -huh. you, you can see when there's an issue, they will bring out statement, but they will be one part. The media is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that is fake so... Fake news, <laughs> fake news. It's all fake news. <laughs> I think, you know, um, Jasmine, it's been quite convenient to place the blame on the media whenever anything yeah. goes wrong. Uh -huh. You see, so that seems to be the habit of <laughs> any government sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, so this is why, and, and some of them tend to go like, oh, you guys must report the truth and whatnot, you know. We have us to do that. <laughs> you know, we need to we need to have the freedom to do our job and also... Politicians need to know how to take criticisms. The, mm -hmm. the issue, the, the thing is very simple. When you hold public office, you are not immune because it's on taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. You must be open to criticism. You must be able to take it and handle it well. And if you are not able to, perhaps politics is not for you. So, right. yeah. <laughs> well, for the two of you and every other friend of ours in the media, <laughs> keep on carrying on. <laughs> thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Suhail. Okay. And thank you, Jasmine. <laughs> okay. Of course, that was um, Ahmad Suhail, Adnan journalist with the News Desk, Brita Haryan, and Yiswari Palansami, senior correspondent in the Malay Mail.